A tear, Sarah Jane. No, don't cry. While there's life, there's the Doctor Who podcast. It's another week and another episode of the Doctor Who podcast. In this show, we'll be looking at episode two of the new Matt Smith season, entitled The Beast Below. Let's see what James, Tom and Trevor thought about this episode. Dear faithful listeners, and there are listeners, plural, many of you, to the Doctor Who podcast. Fantastic to have you on board again. Hello, Tom, and hello, James. Hiya. Hello, Trev. I suppose what I want to first say before we get into the review is a big, 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 big thank you, and I'm sure this comes from the other two guys, of the mountain of feedback you've sent in, the, the mountain of emails you've sent wishing us well, the, the way you've taken to our Twitter account, to our forums, and just got in there and really started enjoying Doctor Who for what it is and enjoying the new Matt Smith season. We, I can honestly say, have been overwhelmed by the amount of feedback we've received and the amount of enthusiasm that you, our listeners, are showing for this new show. Personally, I just want to say thank you very much. Yeah, exactly, so thank you very much. Mm, yeah, I'd certainly like to echo that. I think the the sheer number of people on our forums is, is a great testament uh, to us, really. We're very, very proud that we managed to get so many people signed up to the forums and so many listeners so quickly. So either that or it's something about our highly controversial views. <laughs> <laughs> Well, one of our members' highly controversial views. Yeah, well, that's Tom for you, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) Well, let's see if we can keep that old potter stirring in this episode, and uh, we'll come back to you very in a very short second with our look at the episode two of Matt Smith's first season, The Beast Below. Well, we've got over all the preliminary stuff. We've introduced a new doctor. We've introduced a new companion. We've introduced a new TARDIS. Now it's time to get on with the season proper, and we really get that with The Beast Below. I'll just jump right in and at the beginning and say I really enjoyed this. Um, I, I was making some notes while I was watching it. Not so much notes about how much I enjoyed it, but notes about how I was, I suppose, consciously or unconsciously comparing it to stories during the Russell T Davies era because I looked at the way that Beast Below was put together and I said hmm this is how end of the world should have been this is how new earth should have been my goodness this is gridlock done better and even more importantly if the long game was done this well back in the Eccleston era I would have enjoyed it a lot more Beast Below for me really seems to be getting a lot more right not perfect of course but a lot more in the general direction of of, of a good story about um, the way Earthlings are expanding out into the universe and the different ways they're they're colonising or surviving. I hear what you're saying. Do you know, it sounds a bit like... Well, as, as I said to um, my, my partner as we were watching the show, 
This is definitely talented fans of the show making the show. It seems to be very much about the great outbreak, the, the idea of human beings leapfrogging out into the cosmos that Tom Baker described in the Ark in Space. So if there is a parallel, I get the feeling that it's very much going to, it's very much the Ark in Space. Uh, so Tom Baker's second episode. Oh, wonderful comparison, yes. Mm -hmm. uh, because <clears throat> there, there's Matt Smith being enthusiastic, being wanting to get hands on. I never interview. I, I never interfere in the in the uh, events of humanity and and, and time. <laughs> um, in the same way as Tom Baker did. He's 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 enthusiastic. He's what's what I'm looking for? Um, inquisitive. Inquisitive. There we go. He's very. He is very doctorish. Um, in this episode, and, but but it is uh, and it is very much that he's like, oh, let's go and get involved, let's go and get involved. There, there were shades of utopia inside there with that whole breaking down element of 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 uh, Starship UK, all of which is entirely opposite, given that we've got the the electrons coming up as well. But I I got a, I got a big feeling of the arc in space off this, and I have I, I have some things to ask you about what you thought of Matt Smith in this episode. But yeah, it was good. It is good. You can feel the you can feel the production sort of putting on its boots, standing up and going like, right, <clears throat> we've got some work to do for the next 13 weeks. Brilliant episode, I thought. James. Yeah, I liked it. Hey! What? <laughs> oh, bravo! Thank you for the spontaneous you, round of applause. You can almost hear listeners across the world sighing in relief. <laughs> oh, thank goodness James liked it. It was not, however, <laughs> without its problems. Uh, but, I, but I think there are far, far more positives about this episode than negatives, and I thought it absolutely knocked the socks off the 11th hour. Um, despite it being tonally very, very different. Um, I, I completely agree with what Tom said about the links with um, the Ark in space. And I actually remember watching Utopia uh, back in well, 2006, I think, season three, um, and thinking, yeah, this is all linked in. And I think, yeah, you can very easily plug this episode into the Ark in space and Utopia. And um, I think that was the intention, to be honest with you. I think even I think there was even a reference to solar flares uh, made in yesterday's mm. um, yesterday's episode. I, I felt there were actually quite a lot of other um, connections to the classic series in this one as well, and uh, particularly Pertwee's era, um, where you felt. I mean, the the words that comes to mind is industrial, and I think a lot of that was because most of Pertwee's episodes, or a lot of Pertwee's episodes, were filmed in power stations, nuclear power stations, electrical plants, and something along those lines. And the, the, the kind of um, episodes that Trev mentioned earlier on, Gridlock, The Long Game, that's the kind of modern day equivalent for me. Um, kind of a factory feel, if you know what I mean. And I felt that really, really worked uh, in yesterday's episode. I, I thoroughly enjoyed that. Um, I love the idea of having a spaceship with... Um, all of the UK counties' names in you know neon lights down the side of buildings. I thought that was uh, really good. It made me smile. Um, loved that particular vision of the future. Um, really enjoyed that. And I loved the equivalent of the London Underground. Um, where on earth they got the permission to use the London Underground logo on the Vader system? I have absolutely uh, no idea. But um, <laughs> I, I really did smile and really began to relax because I was so desperate to enjoy this one after the <laughs> disappointment I felt with the 11th hour. Um, but yeah, there, there were two other moments just, just quickly on the, on the classic series. And that was when both the Doctor and Amy, when they came down the chute into what was the Beast's mouth in the end, I, I, I've i just finished watching The Monster of Peladon, and of course you've got the Doctor and uh, Sarah Jane pushed straight down a, a chute into a pit. So that was... Um, that was that resonated with me there 
and also the whole concept you know of, of there being a beast in the basement just struck me of paradise towers and i think matt oh, smith snap yeah snap. well matt, yes. matt smith's yeah. portrayal yeah. matt smith's portrayal here i think was very mccoy like and snap. i i, I yes. picked it up at the end of the 11th hour but when matt smith speaks in that clipped way and he pronounces every single word you know very similar to our tom really um i just thought then <laughs> yeah that is very very seventh doctor and of course you've got the links between the seventh and the second doctor as well so for me matt mm. smith's portrayal was far more recognizable as the doctor this time so yeah i'm, I'm sure we'll get into other bits and pieces as, uh, as as we go on but overall thoroughly enjoyed this one It's this or Lebworth. What do you think? Let's see. What will Amy Pond choose? Ha <laughs> gotcha. Meet me back here in half an hour. What are you gonna do? What I always do, stay out of trouble. Badly. I was getting the exact same feeling you were, uh, James, but probably for different reasons. I, I see where you're coming from with Matt channeling Sylvester McCoy a little bit there and and you mentioned Paradise Towers because that was a story that occurred to me while I was watching this. Another one that also occurred to me was was the other Seventh Doctor story, Happiness Patrol. Yes. Now, yes. these these two stories are, are similar for me in a certain respect that the Doctor enters into a very contained, localised environment and solves overnight some great problem that's afflicting these people. In, in the case of Paradise Towers, it, it's the monster that's in the basement. In the case of Happiness Patrol, it's the whole concept of always having to be happy and having to overthrow the very Thatcher-esque um, leader on that particular planet. And I just kept getting these vibes all the way through Beast Below that, that I, I was seeing the Doctor really getting in there, mucking about, trying to find out what, what was going on and trying to solve the problem. I agree with you, but I, I, I get the feeling that with the way the show was laid out this time round, I, I, again, knowing that in the United Kingdom <clears throat> we've got the local and general elections coming up, there was very much a feeling of, well, you voted for this, you've got five years to do this, you can forget or you can remember or you can abdicate and so on and so forth, which is a very powerful message. Um, I don't know if we'll talk about that later on, um, but that was... One of the things I got from Stephen Moffat was he was saying, well, look, Doctor Who's a fairy tale, not in as much as, oh, look, it's got people with wings in it, like the Menoptera. There was a distinct need to try and educate children and the, and the, and the audience about what the electoral process can mean. There is uh, a slight... There's something I want to talk to you about later on, actually, uh, about the idea of whether information and knowledge is a right or a privilege. Um, but it was interesting to see how the Queen and Amy choose to forget or chose to forget what consequences their choices at that at one point had for them whilst living through what the consequences actually were, which is exactly what's going on in the United Kingdom at the moment. You know, we, we have to go, we have to decide whether or not we're going to change 12 years worth of elect of electoral system and government. Uh, and do we remember or do we forget? Do we make the, do, do we make the decision based on what we know or what, or what we think? Do, does that make sense to you? Interesting point. And I think the focus was not necessarily on democracy, but was on the ability propaganda has to make you make a decision that you believe at the time is of your own free will. But in hindsight, how much or how heavily are you influenced by either the media or, or, or things that you hear second or third hand. And 
Yeah, I thought mm. that was an extremely powerful message, really, um, within a seemingly quite light um, episode in places. That's Doctor Who going back to doing what it is meant to do. It's meant to give you a really powerful idea in a sim in a, in, a, in sugar coating. As Stephen Moffat said in the in the Confidential, it's a fairy tale, but it's the, it's a fairy tale like Ring of Ring of Roses, which is t- which is telling you about the Black Death. Here is a fairy tale telling you about the electoral process. We may not see. I, I don't want to get too overboard. About, I don't, don't want to get too overboard about this. But we may not see the fruits of this sort of um, indoctrination um, for another ten years because there'll be there's a whole generation watching this and loving it and getting into the idea of it if they if they understand how powerful their vote is you know and, and as the doctor says well look actually look around you that is the message that seems to be coming out of this so far look around you look at what's happening around you take notice of what's happening around mm. you see that you're involved in it I'll give you the perspective of an Aussie viewer to this because I'm not really aware of what's going on over there. I didn't know you were having a general election. I'm not that into politics even at my local level. So it's interesting that um, that you, Tom, got the impression that it was trying to show a side of what's happening with your political system. When I watched it and I saw the various decisions that, that the characters within had to make, I took it on a more base level that it, it's really what Doctor Who has shown us for a long time, that the human race can be quite selfish, that the human race can be uh, quite self-serving, especially when it's after its own interests, that the choice they have is to, well, continue on under this ideal existence or die. And I, I think most selfish human beings will take the option, well, if I'm not going to remember what the truth is, then it's not going to affect me. Well, it, it's the easy option, isn't it? It, it? It's presenting us with the easy option, and you think, well, yeah, okay, it's it's not going to affect me personally. However, the whole message of this particular episode was go on, take a chance, see what happens. Um, so I do think there was, or you can read into it, that there were political undertones there. And I think there was there was a much more explicit message about Scottish devolution as well, and, uh, <laughs> you know, in, <coughs> which really made me smile. Um, in as much as older Scots went off and they built their own spaceship, <laughs> which I mm. thought was, was fantastic. I think mm. even the eleventh hour had a had a few swipes at the Scottish as well. <laughs> I, I was watching it with a few friends, and they were going on about that comment about your Scottish fry Fry something (laughs) and and that then there was the undertones later about um you know when when Matt made his comment about uh, cowboy builders the uh, guy sitting next to me said I wonder if that builder was Scottish as well yeah it there just seems to be a lot of anti-Scott sentiment well I think it's it's different I, I think the 11th hour it was deliberately taken a mick um you know and i think that was very tongue-in-cheek from stephen moffat and you know karen gillen probably bought into that as well but the devolution comment was was not uh you know a joke at the scots expense that is purely to say well the scots have gone off and done their own thing um and that i think was um intended to make us think that they'd done something better and again yeah. hence the reason yes. for devolution if you speak to um, I wouldn't want to speak for all of Scotland here, but uh, it's a case of saying, well, yeah, we don't really want to be allied so much to the UK, which is why devolution came about in the first place, um, which was, uh, oh, this is turning into quite a political podcast, really, isn't it? It is, isn't Shall it? Shall we talk about Star Wars analogies instead? Help us. Obi-Wan Kenobi. You're our only hope. Oh. 
I think we just have to put a cautionary note in that. I mean, for me personally, just just to tie up this little bit, we're not 100% sure whether it is really some sort of political statement that that the production team is trying to say. I've, I've been I, no, I, I've just been listening to what you've all said, and it's been perfectly valid. But I keep thinking of interviews with Barry Letts all the time from the seventies. That his constant bemusement that people were picking up these messages from his stories that he never put there, or that the writers never put there. And he said for many, many years um, until his death that the Green Death was our only stab at doing some form of message. And even that was just a sort of save the planet type message that all the other messages people were getting from the monster of Peladon and all those other stories were stuff that people <laughs> watching it were picking up, not actually stuff that was planted there to start with. So <laughs> it's it's great that you're finding this in Modern Who, mm. but I'd hate to read an interview with Stephen Moffat next week where he goes... What are those people on Doctor Podcast talking about? That was never there to start with. So, what what I'd like to talk about is some of the elements of the story now, um, and and maybe you guys can help some of my bemusement about some of the story mm. elements because as 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 of recording, I've only seen it once. I I thought the concept of the the smilers and the winders were fantastic, yep. incredibly creepy, wonderfully chilling, but. I kept trying to think, and maybe I missed a bit of rush dialogue at some point. What was their original function? <laughs> because um, <laughs> we, we, no we saw the bit at, at the beginning of the episode where they seem to be the teachers for the children. Yeah. But, yeah. but they're also used as this constant foreboding presence that somehow keeps the population in check for yeah. some reason. They seem to morph into a tool that kept the population in check against them finding out what the real truth was or something. Yeah, I, I thought they were very scary as well, very macabre, and I thought they actually worked really well as a kind of menacing omnipresence, and I I just viewed them eventually as kind of CCTV cameras for whoever it was who was this higher power who turned out to be the Queen. Um yeah, but um, having said that, having said that, I didn't quite understand the direct relevance of them. Um, I couldn't figure out why they were there. Um, I was slightly confused. And after it had finished, I kind of felt as if there'd been a rather important scene cut uh, that explains that particular element of the story. And I, I think perhaps I need to go back and watch it again because I thought there were several problems with the 11th hour that when I rewatched it, I thought, oh, well, actually, that was just a problem with my, you know, lack of understanding, or I missed that particular exchange of dialogue between the characters, and perhaps that's happened again for me, but I, I don't think it was particularly obvious as, as to why they were, as to why they were there, but I did like them. Having said that, I thought they were a wonderful invention. So I get the feeling that what what this what the Moffat era, if you like, is doing is crediting us with some intelligence. You may have noticed in the background there were boards for Magpie Electricals um, <laughs> several idiot times lantern. through the show. Yeah. Exactly, and inside that, inside the idiot, idiot, inside the idiot's lantern, you've got the idea that watching TV is something that idiots do. I got the feeling that the Smilers were television. You just defer to it and go like, yes, okay, thank you, great, cheers, thank you, great, thank you, in the way that you do with TV and with government. And it links back to the Idiot's Lantern and all the semiotics that are inside that as well. So I, I do understand what you mean. It's not explicit, it's implicit. And 
which is part of my celebration here. Doctor Who is giving it to the kids and saying, be frightened of lifts, be frightened of lifts, trust nothing. Um, but at the same time, it's also saying to people who are old enough to remember, here is what the idiot's lands, here's a, here's a semiotic from the idiot's lantern, here's the crack in time and space as well. Um, Indeed. Who, who wrote the idiot's lantern, Tom? Do you know, that was the first thing I was saying to my partner. I was like, I've got to check, I've got to check. So do you know what, while you're talking now, I'm going to check it out on the internet. No, I know, I know the answer. <laughs> it's all right, Please. I know the answer. It's Mark Gatiss. Mark Gatiss. <sighs> and who's writing next week's episode? I'm wondering whether or not they are revisiting the Magpie organisation, possibly. Because, you know, we've got the same people involved. We've got quite a direct reference, as you've mentioned there. Um, and mm. I, I'm interested to see whether or not, you know, <laughs> I'm trying to think now. The um, When was The Idiot's Lantern set? That was 50s, wasn't it? 1950s? It was. 50s, yes. Yeah. And yep. World, World War Two finished in uh, 1945. So we could be seeing yep. the genesis of the Magpie organisation next week, perhaps. Wow, because they did say it was a syndicate. Oh, this is mm. it. Proper Doctor Who. He wants, he wants, he wants, he makes you want to go back and watch the old episode again. Brilliant. Because that was one go. of the weaker episodes in that season, you know? It's all one big tapestry, Tom. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Look, I, I, I'm, getting far too, I'm getting far too excited. Please. <laughs> I have to, I'm You're sitting right. here smiling, Tom. Every now and again, when you get a point, I can just... When you go, ah... It's like a light bulb comes on over your little icon on my computer. <laughs> and it's like, I had an idea. Great. Well, I want to get Tom excited even more. I, I want to talk about, for, for me, what was one of the highlights of, of this episode, the Doctor and Amy interaction. Yeah. I have enjoyed a Doctor and companion relationship that much for years and years. Yeah, it yeah. was incredible. Um especially the scene they had on that red bench there uh, yeah. towards the beginning of the episode where they're mimicking each other's voices and and Matt seems to have this wonderful ah type phrase now going <laughs> along with along with Geronimo unfortunately which just delights me every time I hear it and those two mm. just have such a wonderful chemistry together which really reminds me of the chemistry in more than one way between um Tom Baker and Lala Ward. Mm. Yes, I think you're entirely right. In the fiction of the story, what I think is quite interesting is that uh, as, as we look at what happened with the two characters, um, Amy was actually technically older than the Doctor. Explicitly so. She was 1,300 years old. And there was that, whoa, there's that brilliant character moment where Matt is going, no one, no, no one in the human race has anything to say to me today. Three options. One... I'd let the Starwell continue in unendurable agony for hundreds more years. Two, I kill everyone on this ship. Three, I murder a beautiful, innocent creature as painlessly as I can. And then I, I find a new name because I won't be the doctor anymore. Must be something we can do some other way. Nobody talk to me. Nobody. No one has anything to say to me today. And he did it in that in that few couple of seconds. Better than I'm sorry, David, but better than the tenth, better than David Tennant did. Slightly better than um, David Eccleston did. Oh, sorry, sorry, David. Slightly better than Christopher Eccleston did as well. He was. It actually made me jump. It's like, oh God, he's angry. He's really agreed, angry. Agreed. Um, he, he he was fantastic. I mean, just not just not only his righteous indignation about people daring to speak to him, but just all the other stuff that he was doing throughout the episode mm. that. On, on the one hand, reminded me of so many other Doctors in, in a good way, mm. but also really showed me where Matt Smith's Doctor is travelling. Yeah. He, he's really 
forging his own characterization so quickly, probably even more quickly than Eccleston and Tennant did. Yeah, I'll go with that. I'll go with that. Um, but the, the, point I would, the point I do want to stay with, though, is that technically, in the, in the fiction of the story, Amy was older than the Doctor. She was 1,300 years old. Tom, yeah. how long have you been watching Doctor Who for? If you're trying to foist that sort of argument on me that, that, that Amy Potton was older than the Doctor... <laughs> You haven't been watching Doctor Who for very long, have you? There's, there's physically old and there's mentally old. There's wisdom and there's years, and the two are not. <laughs> and they're not. The two are not necessarily linked. Um, and and her little the phrase fact that the doctor, the doctor lies about his age, Tom. He lies about his age. He's not nine hundred. <laughs> You're absolutely right, Trev. I mean, I, I, I completely agree about the bond between uh, the Doctor and Amy being very, very convincing this time. And that's always something they've tried to push, particularly in the new series. I remember in The Unquiet Dead where you've got the Ninth Doctor and Rose just holding hands. And I think he says something along the lines of, I'm so glad I met you. And I didn't buy that, you see, because no, the, the relationship no. just wasn't established as convincingly or as compellingly. And that was episode three of, um, of, of the 2005 series. Whereas this time, at the end of the episode where they have that quite a prolonged hug. I bought it completely. I really did. Mm. And it was it was one of the mm. very first things I wrote down in my notes, along with the very old, very lonely and very kind comment. You get the sense that this companion is much, much brighter than Rose and she's nowhere near as selfish as Rose because she really took that chance at the very end just, you know, because she saw the, the humanness of what turned out to be the... Um, Star Whale, yeah. I think they called it, because it pitied crying yeah. children. I think, do you know, I, I, th I think you're right. It's about relativity. Age isn't something you get in years. It's something you get in wisdom and experience and time. And Amy has had an awful lot of experience. You know, she, 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 what, she, what, when she was five, six years old or ten years old, she met this guy that fell out of the sky, told her about how the world was, and, she, and she, she's had to work with it for like 15, 20 years. Um, and, and, and evolve a kind of wisdom and age from that, which is only now coming into play and coming into play in a huge way against the Doctor's uh, age and experience. Like, you know, like, like I said, it's that whole pivotal scene where he's like, no one's got anything to say to me today. No, no one's got anything to say. And we're all cowed and we're all scared because you've got gravitas. But look, oh, I'm watching. Oh, I'm watching in the same way that Sarah Jane would do, in the same way that Rose would do. Um, you know, th th there's a reason why the Doctor likes humanity, and it's because it reminds him that you actually have to be connected to the universe. You don't just have to be an observer. Ah, oh, Stephen Moffat, come and marry me. For me watching that, all the stuff with Amy Pond, all her interactions with the Doctor, the way I felt that Amy forgave a Doctor that she never met for all the problems and anger and frustration that, that the David Tennant doctor had. She, she seemed to, within a couple of lines, forgive the doctor that she never even knew for all that and said, well, you're a new man now, you've got to cope with it. I mean, for me, within a few short seconds of screen time, it validated three years, four years of the David Tennant era. It, it was incredibly glorious. It's an interesting point of view, I have to say, and uh, especially when you consider that within the 11th hour, we covered 14 years of Amy's life 
and the eleventh doctor and put her through hell. Four psychiatrists, do you remember? And all of a sudden, <laughs> it's the doctor giving Amy an incredibly hard time. I think she's an exceptionally nice person, not to just say, mm. "Take me home mm. instantly." You've screwed up my life. But uh, well, I, he I, I he he, was... he tried to put it on her. He tried to put it on her. Uh, when we're done here, you're going home. Because you know, he he got that whole very determined old man type thing like that's it i'm gonna fix this and then, I'm, then we're going home but then again we have the doctor and companion relationship which is okay doctor you know what you're doing you can see what, you, what you're up to but it's the doctor nurse relationship it's the uh, captain sergeant relationship which is i can see where you're going i have to defer to you but you know what you're wrong uh it's not a flaw it's uh so, it's a what? The next word is kind of the scary word. You probably want to take a moment, get yourself in a calm place. Go om. Um, um. It's a tongue. A tongue. A tongue. A great big tongue. I think there were some other really good production um, points that uh, I'd like to mention. I, I've been really impressed with the music so far in these first two episodes. And despite it being composed and. Um, performed, conducted, whatever the term is, by Murray Gold, um, I, I think it's very, very different. And it keeps on buzzing around my head in a good way, you know, long after I've seen the episodes. So I thoroughly enjoyed that. And it complements the new tone of the programme perfectly, I feel. I, th I think there was a major problem with a lot of Murray Gold's stuff, um, series three, one to four. And I know Marty felt very strongly about this. And, and that's that the sound mix was wrong and sometimes they played the music so flipping loudly you couldn't actually hear what the characters mm. were saying and that's not a criticism of Murray Gold's music it's it's a criticism of whoever has got the responsibility to actually fade in this music into the dialogue track and I've noticed for definite within the 11th hour and the beast below that is simply not an issue and I don't know how that's been addressed but I'm, I'm really very very pleased that it has been. You probably know, one of the things I thoroughly enjoy doing is, is, is try to look at a particularly new episode of Doctor Who and try and see what the influences are um, and de decide whether or not they are actually influences or whether or not they've been actual rip-offs. We've already talked about classic Who um, analogies earlier on in this, uh, in, in, in this show, but um, were there any points, and I'd be very, very surprised if either of you said no here, that you didn't think are oh, Star Wars? Well, there there was the whole help us Obi Wan Kenobi. Yeah, only hope <laughs> that's the big one. <laughs> help us, Doctor, your only hope. That's the one. And that actually in the that, and that coming out of the mouth of what a strong character, Liz Ten. Mm. Oh, how mm. good was she? Strong too, but I think Liz Ten was was a wonderful pastiche or homage or whatever you want to call it to those sort of. 50s and 60s B-movie heroines, someone mm. that's just such larger-than-life, stronger character, but someone that's not particularly rooted in reality. I mean, you can't point to the Liz Ten character and go, that's like this person in real life, because they're just so larger than life. Agreed. Agreed. I thought she was possibly one of the weakest supporting characters in this episode oh. for me. I, I, I didn't particularly enjoy her portrayal. She reminded me of... Um, one of the kings in uh, in Paradise Towers. Yeah, true, so, true. Yeah, just just a little bit cartoony for me. Again, but you know, take, taking taking um a step back from it, it's like, oh look, that's the Queen of England, a black woman. 
you know that there's going to be people well upset about that. And again, that's Doctor Who saying, look, accept this. The chances are, you know, the best person for a job is a woman. It may be a black woman. Get it now, kids, because in fifty, in thirty years, you'll be running, you'll be running the joint. Get it now. Fairy tale. It's not as though the Queen is nominated by election or anything, Tom. It's not like, yes, we're going to have the best person for the job as the Queen. <laughs> it, it doesn't work that way. I'm it might do um, in 1,300 do, years' time. It may. True, plus, true. Plus, go, go back 50 years, and there was, a real problem with, the, 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 there was a real problem with secession, so the best person for the job was someone who was politically opposite. I mean, we, we're moving through this, guys, now. Let's, let's talk about the ending of the episode. And um, first of all, there's, there's two things here that are rather important, I think. First of all, the shot that um, the episode finished on, when it was kind of panning away from, what was it called? Starship UK, or whatever it was. That mm. shot was almost identical to that at the end of The Girl in the Fireplace. There's been quite a lot of talk on the forums about the similarities within the 11th hour and the girl in the fireplace. Um, but that was more to do with the um, story and, and, and how the Doctor met Amy. Whereas this, I think, it just kind of felt very, very similar. There was a very, very important point to be made right at the very end of the episode. And of course, we're talking about the crack here in the shell of what was the uh, the space whale or the star whale, which I think we should talk about in a bit more detail as well. So clearly, the bad wolf of series five is going to be a crack in reality, within time itself, who knows. But um, I was wondering, because that was, that, that was a very, very subtle way of introducing the, the story arc. I mean, did you have any thoughts when you saw that particular final scene at all? I didn't consider the, the crack on the outside of the spaceship to be particularly subtle, because I thought it was quite well telegraphed during that scene. Um, okay. Subtle wasn't a word that really springs to mind. I don't know, really. I mean, it, it's, it's still too early for me to really, I suppose, understand or I suppose even more accurately care about what this whole <laughs> crack in time really means yet. I mean... I'm just really hoping that Stephen Moffat gives us something different to the RTD era, that we're not going to have all this, what ends up being pointless build-up for very little payoff. So mm. I'm at this stage, I'm I'm not getting very excited about it. Moffat okay. seems to be a tidier writer, a much tidier writer. He'll tell you stuff because you need to know it, as opposed to smoke and mirrors, smoke and mirrors, smoke and mirrors. Oh, and I just push a button at the end of it i do I, I, don't get me wrong i recognize in this story there was um, stuff about press a button press a button but i think again it's because if you tell children look this is the this this is what you're gonna have to do you're gonna have to make choices as you get older you, you don't have to live with the consequences of your choices you have to either admit them or dismiss them that it's, it's tidy writing i'm not saying that russell t davis can't write jesus that's that's a man that's won awards and his and his his work is one of the reasons why we sat here now. Um, but I have a preference towards Stephen Moffat's style of writing, which is to say I build characters like Russell does, but I'm tidier. I don't leave anything undone and I don't make it... I, I don't just like leave things click-smished. Click-smished? You, you can't see you can't see this, Tom, but I'm sitting at my microphone nodding very, very <laughs> enthusiastically. But I, I agree with you completely about that. Um, the space well. I mean, oh, I keep calling it space well for a reason. Actually, I and mean, what was the actual name again, guys? Remind me. Was it the Star Well? Star Well. Right. Star-well. Okay. I now, think clearly... you're confusing it because I. I mean, I, I have a distant memory of a classic series episode. I think during the Davison era had a, had a, had the provisional title of Space yeah. Well. Well, you say the Davison era. Originally, it was a 
script drafted during Tom Baker's era that never really came to anything. It was then strongly considered, I think, as part of one of Peter Davison's series and cancelled, I think, mainly due to um, financial um, practicalities in terms of bringing such an enormous concept to screen. And then it was brought back again and revisited during Colin Baker's cancelled season. And I know, again, it was considered as part of the big finish Colin Baker missing season. But I don't think they were able to secure the rights. And that's why you ended up getting a rather late entry into that series that um, never actually was going to be included in the missing season for Colin Baker. But yeah, I, I thought it was great. It was almost like, well, you know, we've talked about this for the last 20 to 30 years and I've actually managed to bring it to screen. And then <laughs> it looks like the great big turtle out of um, Discworld and Terry Pratchett. <laughs> so, doesn't it, doesn't yeah. it? <laughs> I, I just thought it was um, it was a great concept. Um, I, I generally enjoyed this story. You know, in all of its um, all of its glory, a couple of plot points I didn't quite understand, but uh, I like to think that's because I don't understand them, rather than the fact that they didn't make sense. And um, I love the pacing, and I simply can't wait uh, for the rest of this season now. Well, I think we're all pretty much on the same page, aren't we, guys? Which is uh, a change. <laughs> <laughs> In the next time trailer, you must have picked on that massive sort of who gush um, when the Dalek said, I am your soldier. You, oh, that's how, how wonderful mm. is that? No, <laughs> absolutely brilliant. I love the very ending of that particular episode for, for not only that brilliant line, and I'm, Mark Gatiss must have been incredibly pleased with himself when he wrote that particular line, um, and also the fact that this particular episode led directly into episode three with a phone call from Winston Churchill. And that is a direct hark back to the first Doctor days where you used to get, you know, the first couple of minutes of the next adventure right at the end of mm. the previous one. Mm. And I was just loving that. I thought it was absolutely fantastic. Could have been, could have done with being perhaps 10, 15 minutes longer this time around. But um, just because I think it felt quite rushed towards the end of the episode. But aside from that, Loved it. Thought it was really good. But there's a the thing. How is it that Winston Churchill's got the number for the TARDIS and how will he react to seeing a child, sorry, Matt, falling out the front of that blue box? I'm, I'm really hoping they explain the whole reason why Winston Churchill has the uh, TARDIS's phone number. I mean, it really seemed to remind me of uh, Tom Baker's story, Terror of the Zygons, where the Brigadier was able to basically dial up... Um, the fourth doctor and say, come and help us, please. Is that, so, is um, that, like, is that like Martha I'm, giving him a shout and saying, I'm bringing you back to Earth? In the- exactly. I'm hoping there's a valid reason for it. With In Martha's case, we, we already knew she had a phone that could call him. But at this particular moment, we don't know how Winston Churchill can dial up a time-travelling police box. We'll wait and see, I suppose. This is Prime Minister. First the Queen, now the Prime Minister. Get about it, don't you? Which Prime Minister? Um, uh, uh, which Prime Minister? The British one. Which British one? Which British one? Winston Churchill, before you. Oh, hello, dear. What's up? Tricky situation, Doctor. Potentially very dangerous. I think I'm going to need you. 
Don't worry about a thing, Prime Minister. We're on our way. Get your feedback in about The Beast Below and any other episode of the uh, Matt Smith Era 2 feedback at the Doctor Who Podcast.com. We'll be having a midweek episode coming up probably around midweek, I'd say. So um, <laughs> get your, get, which will feature your feedback. Be quiet, Tom. Uh, which will feature oh, your feedback as well. Oh, let's have it at the weekend. Well. Can't we have the midweek episodes <laughs> of the weekend? And let's oh, put the weekend let's just do it now. midweek. <laughs> <laughs> All right. You've picked on me enough now, guys. Thank you very much. <laughs> but get it into feedback at thedoctorypodcast.com. All right, that's it for another episode of the Doctor Who Podcast. Thank you very much for joining us for this episode and listening to our witterings on about uh, the beast below. Get your feedback in. Join us on Twitter. Have a look at our Facebook page for what it is at the moment or join the Doctor Who Podcast forums. Um, There's a lively little community building there and we would love to have you on board and read your thoughts about um, anything to do with Doctor Who. So until a very few short days' time, I'll say goodbye to you all and I'll say goodbye, James. Goodbye, Trav. And goodbye, Tom. Take it easy. And what better way to end the episode with a short clip from a very recent Paul McGann Big Finish audio. See you next time, guys. Bye-bye. Coming soon from Big Finish Productions, Dead London. Geronimo! Coming up next time on the Doctor Who podcast. Tom and Trev will be in the Doctor Who podcast camper van and we'll be looking at the fan reaction to The Beast Below, what you've thought of the episode, what questions you've raised from it, and we'll also be reading out your feedback on this particular story, so get it into feedback at thedoctorwhopodcast.com. That was The Doctor Who Podcast, which you can find at thedoctorwhopodcast.com. If you have any feedback, please send it into feedback at thedoctorwhopodcast.com. You can also find us on Twitter, Facebook, and via the Doctor Who Podcast forums. Thank you for listening. Take care. went back before that it was um it was a pat mills script that was originally uh drafted in a tom baker era it was then held over to peter davison's and then knocked on the head and then strongly rumored to be part of colin booker colin booker's colin booker colin booker <laughs> good old colin booker yeah colin baker's um cancelled season can, can you just do that bit clean again, please? <laughs> I thought you might ask me to do that. Yeah, certainly. <laughs> just because Tom was giggling in the background. I know. Okay. <laughs> <sighs> well, you say the Davison area, Trev. Um, originally, the area. idea was... Oh. <laughs> <laughs> do I need to do the whole Have another lot glass of champagne, Tom. <laughs> do oh, I need God. to do the whole lot of this again, Trev? Yeah, go on. Please, yes. All right, okay. Okay. <sighs>